Abortion and the Church, a document of Evangel Presbytery. Chapter 1, The Bloodshed of the 20th Century. When the record of our time is written, it will be a record of bloodshed on a scale previously unimaginable across the history of mankind. The heart of that bloodshed is is the war carried out by the born against the unborn. The victims of this war are a class of persons constrained within the wombs of their mothers, and they live without sight, sound, or voice. The disability that unites them is their incapacity to lift a finger in their own defense. Other great moral evils exist, of course, But abortion is unique in targeting the most helpless members of our society. Our bloodlust has never before found a class of victims so utterly vulnerable. For this reason, abortion's bloodshed dwarfs every other bloodshed. How we repent of this bloodshed is thus the greatest moral issue of our time. And this repentance, or its absence— will be predictive of our repentance of a multitude of other moral evils of our age. Infanticide, euthanasia, and physician-assisted suicide are of the same moral fabric as our slaughter of little ones. Some speak of this genocide as being on the decline today. This is false. Across the world, abortions are not falling but rising. The United Kingdom's premier medical journal, The Lancet, reports abortions currently stand at 73.3 million per year. And then all through the document, there are many footnotes, and I will just say footnote so that you know that you can go to the online version and read the footnote and follow the links. Based on that figure alone, we're killing 1% of the world's population each year. But we note this estimate excludes those babies aborted in their first week of life. To facilitate the murder of these babies, our medical authorities have, as we will see, declared that babies in the first week of life are not yet living beings. Abortion slaughter is staggering. Reading such estimates, we ask if it is possible we have murdered billions of babies. How can this be? Why did we not know this number? How did we get here? Who is responsible? What can be done about it? The beginning of answering these questions is to take a step back. Subheading, a grim progression First War. The 20th century, what would become history's bloodiest century, began with war between many nations. The warfare's scale, tactics, and techniques were unprecedented. World War I's trench warfare was so dehumanizing and the killing so sustained that many declared their optimism this horror would force a sea change in government's ability 
to send their men into war. Thus, H.G. Wells named World War I, quote, the war to end all wars, unquote. He was wrong. World War II followed hard on the heels of World War I, so that during the first half of the century, fatalities from these two world wars reached 77 million. But cloaked within this number was a detail foreshadowing the trajectory massive killing would take as the century continued. Subheading targeting civilians. Until the 21st century, Christendom had condemned the killing of civilians during warfare. Since the Middle Ages, the Western world had held to the necessity of just imbello, and three commitments stood out among just war principles. Soldiers who surrendered were not to be killed, suffering was to be minimized, and the indiscriminate killing of noncombatants was prohibited. But at the turn of the 20th century, Christendom itself was, in a sense, on the wane. Atheism and rebellion against God's moral law had grown in the centuries since the Enlightenment, and civilization was about to pay the price. Sadly, of the 17 million fatalities of the First World War, 7 million were civilians. The Second World War was worse. Of an estimated 60 million fatalities, 40 million were civilians. Note that these numbers don't even include the tens of millions who died from secondary causes like disease and famine. Thus, from the start, the 20th century was exceedingly bloody. The wars were worldwide, the killing was beyond anything imaginable, and civilians were intentionally targeted, so that the elderly, women, and children made up the majority of the war's casualties. By the end of the Second World War, targeting civilians was a major strategy of both Axis and Allied forces. Both sides of the conflict used conventional bombs to kill the civilian populations of their enemies. Speaking only of our Allied Air Force's attacks on Japan, on March 9 and 10, 1945, the air raid called Meeting House sent 300 bombers to drop 1,665 tons of bombs on Tokyo, leaving close to 16 square miles destroyed and 100,000 dead. United States forces later dropped nuclear warheads on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing 105,000 men, women, and children. By the end of World War II, Allied bombing had damaged or destroyed over one-quarter of German homes, killing or injuring one million German civilians. The relentless nature of Allied bombing of civilians is demonstrated by the fact that 50,000 tons of bombs were dropped on the city of Cologne alone. Footnote. In the end, during the first half of the 20th century, war claimed 77 million souls, of whom 47 million were civilians. Just war principles had been cast aside. In its conduct of war, the Western world had sown the wind. In the justice of God, we would now reap the whirlwind. Subheading, 
rulers killing citizens. As the century continued, the killing turned from nations killing nations to rulers of nations killing their own people. The Soviet Union's great prophet Alexander Solzhenitsyn estimated Joseph Stalin was responsible for the deaths of more than 60 million. Chairman Mao's great leap forward, great famine, and cultural revolution claimed somewhere between 40 and 100 million lives. The death toll of Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge in Cambodia was only 2 million, but these 2 million souls comprise one quarter of his nation's population. First, World Wars I and II killed 77 million souls. Then communism killed at least 100 million souls. And this was bloodshed in service, not to national boundaries defended as patriotism, but pure ideology. As Solzhenitsyn wrote, documenting Stalin's death toll in the Soviet Union, quote, Thanks to ideology, the 20th century was fated to experience evildoing on a scale calculated in the millions. This cannot be denied, nor passed over, nor suppressed, unquote. And a footnote. First, soldiers killed soldiers, then soldiers killed civilians, then rulers killed their own people. The prophet Hosea warned that bloodshed begets bloodshed. And a footnote. And so it was that the killing next turned inward to the home and family. Fathers and mothers killed their own sons and daughters. Subheading parents killing children. Domestic slaughter began with birth control. And a footnote, and I'm going to read this footnote, uh, number five on page nine. Note the use of the term birth control for what would almost always be labeled contraception across scientific and medical literature. In our usage, the word contraception will refer only to methods of birth control which actually prevent conception, defined as the fertilization of the egg producing an embryo. On the other hand, the words birth control will include contraceptive agents and methods, but also abortifacient agents and methods, which, properly speaking, do not prevent conception, but the little one's implantation development to full term and birth. The first abortions were not surgical, but chemical and hormonal. Before women became willing to pay for their child to be cut out of their wombs, they began using birth control methods that had an abortifacient agency. As we will discuss in greater detail later, these methods include intrauterine devices, IUDs, and the pill. This was well known and presented a problem the medical establishment felt the need to resolve. There was no debate in the scientific and medical world that the moment sperm and egg joined, a new life came into existence. And a footnote. Nor was there any question this pre-born life had a rightful claim to all the protections accorded life outside the womb. 
These truths, though, stood squarely in the path of the mid-century explosion of the practice of birth control so that midway through the century, the American medical establishment undertook the project of denying these little ones were living human beings. Every scientist, physician, and mother knew conception was the beginning of life, so what was to be done? The story is recounted by the American College of Pediatricians who report that back in 1959, a physician with ties to Planned Parenthood named Brent Boving, quote, argued for moving the date of conception from when fertilization occurs to when implantation occurs, unquote. Footnote. Boving suggested, quote, the social advantage of birth control being considered to prevent conception rather than to destroy an established pregnancy could depend upon something so simple as a prudent habit of speech, unquote, footnote. A few years later, Dr. Boving's, quote, prudent habit of speech, unquote, was formally adopted by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, who in 1965 issued a bulletin changing the definition of conception from fertilization to implantation. And a footnote. Consider the significance of this subterfuge promulgated by the American medical establishment. By redefining conception, the killing of babies during their first week of life by means of birth control methods was no longer, quote, abortion, unquote, but, quote, contraception, unquote. The baby was not aborted because he was never conceived. The baby never died because he never lived. Never mind that these little ones are God's own image bearers, having unique DNA and needing nothing more than the sustenance and protection of their mother's womb to be born and live threescore and ten. Who could ever have imagined then, eight years before Roe v. Wade, the monstrous death toll that would result from this lie adopted as merely, quote, a prudent habit of speech, unquote. The saying is true, quote, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive, unquote. We can't be reminded often enough that murderers lie. In his book, Titled Aborting America, Dr. Bernard Nathanson confesses the history of his work legalizing abortion in the late 60s and early 70s. He speaks candidly of the lies he and his abortion rights action league co-belligerents told. He writes, quote, I confess that I knew the figures were totally false, but in the morality of our revolution, it was a useful figure, widely accepted, so why get out of our way? to correct it with honest statistics. The overriding concern was to get the laws eliminated, and anything within reason that had to be done was permissible. Footnote. The legalization and growth of the practices of birth control and abortion are inseparable. This fact must be faced squarely by the people of God. The use of birth control would not have spread as it did without the lie that life doesn't begin at conception. This wicked lie has metastasized across the past 70 years, and now the life of the unborn is denied during all three trimesters. 
abortifacient birth control methods that killed children in their first days of life gave birth to abortions throughout pregnancy, so that today, in some places, late-term abortions are legal even as the baby is in the birth canal, about to take his first breath outside the womb. Thus, in the decades following 1950, abortion came to dwarf every other killing field of the 20th century. Today, it is commonly thought that, at least in the United States, the slaughter of abortion was unleashed by the Supreme Court's 1973 decision, Roe v. Wade. This is factually wrong. Birth control of an abortifacient agency, as well as surgical abortions, were widely practiced prior to the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade ruling. In 1972 alone, the year prior to Roe v. Wade, the death toll of unborn babies surgically aborted in the United States was 586,760. Footnote. Abortifacient birth control methods propped up by scientists and physicians redefining conception and life make no sense outside a world that had become inured to the bloodshed of innocence. World wars and communist ideologies had killed their hundreds of millions. Now the bloodthirst turned inward, and the home became the killing field. Not surprisingly, this intimate familial bloodshed was first normalized behind the Iron Curtain within the Soviet Union, where Russians and Eastern Europeans began killing their unborn children in the early 50s. But it didn't take many years for this horror to spread to Western Europe and North America and now most of the world. Violence begets violence. We become proficient at killing, thinking we have it under control. But actually, the bloodshed has us under its control. And its appetite is voracious and growing. This is the end of Chapter 1, Section 1. The chapter title is The Bloodshed of the 20th Century, and the first section is titled A Grim Progression. Again, the book is Abortion in the Church. It's a document of Evangel Presbytery. Your reader is Tim Bailey. Goodbye. Now do I sleep the sleep of death? Have my days come to an end Oh Lord, will you defend Come, Holy Savior, come my way